Hey, Cornwall Church, so glad that you're with us this weekend. And for those of you online that join us from all over, uh, so glad uh, to be with you. Those in Skagit, glad that you're in the building there with Pastor Brian and the crew there. And those in Bellingham, uh, good to have you in the building as well. And uh, a new addition, those of you at our community site in Ferndale, pretty excited about what's happening there and glad you joined us as well. Today is kind of a, a very special day. It has been a year, an entire year, since I have preached with people in this room. And today is the last time that I preach in an empty room directly to the camera. Starting next week, I'll be preaching live at our weekend services here in Bellingham. And those of you who are online, we will continue to bring you our service. You'll be joining us in real time as our band leads us in worship and I preach. Um, so that, that starts next week. I'm very excited about that to be with you uh, in Bellingham, preaching live there. Um, and those of you in Skagit, again, I will always uh, see you on the big screen. It'll be good to have you there. Hey, we're in this series, Meals with Jesus. And the reason we're doing this is because when you read through the Gospels, you see how many times something very important happens around a table when there's food involved with Jesus. And sometimes these are very significant events that take place, as we have seen and we will continue to see. Sometimes there's life-altering, life-changing, eternity, you know, trajectory-altering interactions with Jesus around a meal. And sometimes there's these deep, profound teachings that happen with Jesus in a dinner setting, in a breakfast setting, around a table. Now, last weekend, Pastor Brian preached about probably one of the most familiar meals, most famous meals, um, probably within the top two that Jesus performed, and that was the turning of the, the loaves and the fishes into the feeding of the 5,000. Now, it is such a significant event that all four gospel writers recorded that feeding of 5,000. Absolutely spectacular, this, this miraculous sign that Jesus does, and he turns this, this little sack lunch into this um, incredible uh, all-you-can-eat fish and chips for, for thousands of people, 5,000 men plus women and children. And the, the amount of food, the quantity of food is miraculous, that it just multiplies. But I wonder, I wonder, this is pure speculation, I wonder if it wasn't just the quantity of food that was a miracle. I wonder if even the quality of food could have been miraculous. Uh, now, hear me out on this. Usually when there's a quantity of food, sometimes it kind of, the quality goes down. Like if you've ever been in the military, if you've ever been in prison, if you've ever gone to school, you know, school food, all right? So sometimes when there's mass quantity, quality drops. But think about this. When Jesus turned water into wine, the master of the, the, of the ceremony said, this is the best wine ever. So when Jesus multiplies this little sack lunch of, of loaves and fishes, what if it wasn't just the magnitude, but it was the quality? What if it was amazing? What if they were, they were struck by the taste? I've never experienced a taste like this. Now, that's just speculation, but it, it makes me wonder. One of the things we know about with Jesus is when he does these miracles, these signs, he doesn't just do them haphazardly. He doesn't just do them as showing off. And like the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just a meal. It was a meal that had a meaning. No, he, he wasn't showing off, but he was giving a sign. And he wasn't just meeting a felt need. These people need to have food. He was also demonstrating and communicating something very, very deep and profound. 
So today we're going to tie in with what Pastor Brian talked about last week, that, that feeding of the 5,000. We will eventually be in John chapter 6, not there yet. But as I mentioned, all four of the gospel writers talk about the feeding of the 5,000. There's two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, who also talk about another miraculous mass feeding. They both talking about the feeding of the 4,000 as well. Now, there's some great similarities between the stories, but some very, very important differences. I preached on this two years ago. I won't go into that a whole lot. But again, Jesus has a message that he's sending when he does this. And what's interesting is that most people completely miss the message altogether. Even his disciples don't pick up on it. They're, they're like, we, we didn't get it. In fact, there is a time, and Mark records this in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus kind of quizzes his disciples because they're just clueless on this. Mark chapter 8, Jesus said to his disciples, Hey, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, that was last week's sermon, you remember, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. Good. They got one for one on the questions. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Good. Okay. You were there. You experienced it. You remember it. You got the questions right. And then Jesus looks at him like, and they probably look at him like, and so, so Jesus says this. He said to them, do you still not understand? And if you read it in context, none of them answer. Why? Because they still don't understand. And I wonder if Jesus just walks away just shaking his head like, oh, these guys, I don't know if they'll ever get it. But here's this, this confusion about what he's doing in these situations. Now, today, when we look at this feeding of the, of the 5,000, what we're going to see is, that, is uh, of what happens after that is that it's not just a meal with Jesus. Today, this is a little different and that we're talking about a meal about Jesus, and as weird as this might sound, a meal of Jesus. Now, in John chapter 6, where we're going to pick up today, there's a lot of um, symbolism, analogy, uh, allegory kind of type things, and, and some of it's a bit confusing, some of it's a little strange, some of it's kind of disturbing and troubling, some of it is even on the borderline disgusting. But, but as he talks about this stuff and he, and he paints these pictures with, with this imagery and, and, and all this symbolism, there is ongoing confusion as well. Just like the disciples had when they're like, yeah, we don't fully understand this. So much so that at the end of the teaching that we're going to look at that Jesus gives today in John chapter 6, Here's kind of the conclusion that many of the disciples, not necessarily the 12, maybe some of them, but many of the followers said in John chapter 6, verse 60, on hearing it, his teaching that we're going to look at today, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Like, wow, this is, this is, is different. It's, it's out of the box. We've never heard stuff like this. We're not sure if it's even right not even sure if we can accept it. And Jesus said, hey, if you're offended by that, and then he gives them even some more to the point of, remember, just a day earlier, there's 5,000 men plus women and children, thousands and thousands of people gathered around Jesus. This is the very next day. And this is what it says in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer followed him. There had been thousands of people, and now they're leaving in droves. You know the only assuring thing to me about this is? Is that sometimes when you speak the truth of, of, of God, there are going to be some people that don't understand. And there are going to be some people that will be offended. And there will be some people that walk away. It happened to Jesus. Now, we don't do that intentionally. We don't try to offend people. We don't try to send people away. But there's some people that just say, I, I, I'm not going to accept the truth of God's word. And, and we know that's the reality. So, so today we're going to pick up in John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. It's the very next day. And you may have noticed uh, today that I have a, a little display here. And uh, it's got some bread. So today we're going to talk a bit about bread. Now, for those of you who are in your 50s and 60s, let me, let me take you back, okay? Just, and for the rest of you, just kind of humorous. For those of you in your 50s and 60s, you remember David Gates and bread. Uh, weren't those like the best dating songs ever? You know, if a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? The words will never show the you I've come to know. Or, baby, I'm a want you. Baby, I'm a need you. Or how about the heartbreak of, you know, I'm lost without your love. Life without you isn't worth the trouble of. Or that really gut-wrenching song, I found your diary underneath the tree and started reading about me. Okay, David Gates and Bread. Some of you will remember that. Well, we're not talking about that, okay? And, and, but for those of us from the 70s, that music was like the best stuff since sliced bread, which you may be wondering, when did that happen? July 7th, 1928. But here's the truth. Long before David Gates and Bread, the group, in the 60s and 70s, long before sliced bread came around in 1928, Jesus starts talking about bread. In fact, it's a theme that you see throughout his entire ministry. From the opening pages of his ministry, after he's baptized, he goes out to be tempted in the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, and the first temptation is around bread. When the evil one comes and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You know, kind of like, go ahead and start a company called Wonder Bread. That would be a good thing. Just kind of do this wonderful. He does not. He does God's will instead. Or how about in the Sermon on the Mount, when he gives the Lord's Prayer, and that famous line, give us this day our daily bread. Now, yeah, it points back to Exodus and manna, which we'll see here in a little bit that comes up again today. But he's reminding us of our dependence on God for our daily bread. Or maybe that most famous meal that we'll look at in the next three or four weeks, the Last Supper, when he's with his disciples and he takes bread and he gives thanks for it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. All the way through, you see this theme of bread. Now today, after he's just multiplied this, this bread to feed 5,000, we come to this point, and kind of the, the key line out of the whole section that we're going to look at is found in John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus said, he declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So see, today we're not looking at a meal with Jesus. We're, we're looking at a meal about Jesus, and as we'll see, a meal of Jesus. And he says, I am the bread of life. Now, here's a little side note. Seven times in the book of John, there are these I am statements. And every single one of them reveals a little bit more of the character of Christ to show who he is. 
You know, I, and this is the very first one. I am the bread of life. And he'll talk about I am the light of the world. And I am the door. And I'm the good shepherd. And I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I am the true vine. He gives all these I am statements. And he starts off with this one. It says, I am the bread of life. But I've gotten way ahead of myself. So let's back up. Remember, he's just fed the 5,000. That night, he sends his disciples on ahead of him. That night, he walks on the water. So he's just done this miraculous sign of feeding the 5,000. Then his disciples see him walking on the water. Kind of a cool little side note, because they're going to go back to Moses here. Moses brings about this manna, and Moses parts the Red Sea. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and he walks on the Sea of Galilee. Who needs to part it when you can walk on it? But regardless. So he does that, and the next day, all these people who had received this miraculous feeding... They come looking for him. They're asking, where is he? And they're trying to find him. That's where we're going to pick up. John chapter 6, verse 26. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs. Very important, this word signs. Not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, let me tell you. The miracles that I do, they're not just miracles to show you my power. They're signs. Signs inform. Signs point to. And the miraculous signs, and John uses that word a lot when he talks about the miracles, and though he doesn't record a lot of Jesus' miracles, he refers to them as signs. Because they're pointing to and informing who this Jesus is. It reveals that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It reveals that he is the 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 incarnation, the, the personification of God. He is the God-man. And he says to these people, you, you, you're looking for me, yes. We're just going to call you out on this one. You're not looking at me because of the signs. You're not looking for me because I'm the Messiah. You're looking for me because yesterday you got an incredible meal, and it was free. I mean, you remember, they had done nothing. They paid nothing. You can imagine the Yelp reviews that Jesus got on Meals with Jesus, you know, Five stars, value, fantastic, quantity, more than we could eat. They picked up extras and had doggy bags left over. You know, uh, the quality, wow, fantastic. He says, the reason that you're looking for me is not because I'm the Messiah. It's not who I am. It's what you want. It's what you think you can get from me. Dale Bruner, in his, um, in his uh, commentary on the book of John, says something to this, uh, uh, this, this effect. He says, Jesus is the king of kings but they want him to be their chef. I thought that was powerful. And how often do we come to Jesus not because he's the king of kings, but because we want him to give us something. See, they came looking for him, and they wanted another lunch. Jesus was okay with them coming looking for him, but he wants to offer to them not a lunch, but a life. All right, so it goes on. It says this. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. There is so much in this verse. A part of it, and again, we won't go into this. If some of you want to dig a little deeper, he kind of gives a nod to Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. You can just write that down and, and look at that later. He also kind of reiterates what he says in the Sermon on the Mount of don't lay up to yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and now he's saying, you know, don't go after food that isn't going to satisfy. Don't go after food that's going to spoil. And then he talks about the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, partly because he identifies with people. He's one of us. He's God with us. He's incarnation. He is the God-man. 
But there's also this passage in Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man is a messianic title. So when Jesus uses that, that title, he's not only saying, hey, I'm one of us, I'm one of you, but I'm completely other. I'm the Messiah. And he says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Like, I want you to have something that's going to give you eternal life. I heard about, uh, it's probably apocryphal, it probably isn't true, but I heard about a, a health food restaurant that had a sign that said, eat here and live a long life. And across the street was a barbecue joint that says, eat here and die happy. <laughs> so you got to kind of choose. You want to enjoy this and that, okay, whatever. Jesus is saying, eat here and have eternal life. Now, to channel my inner Pastor Kip, the Greek word, for life, there, there's more than one word for life. In English, it's translated life, but there are two different, two different Greek words for life. One of the Greek words for life is this word bios, like where we get the word biology, okay? And bios talks about our, our existence, all right? It's, it's, it's our life. It's this chronological life. It's the, the, the quantity of life. That's our days, our months, our years. Like in Psalm 90, when Moses writes, Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to understand that our life doesn't just go on forever and ever and ever. Or when James writes, um, what is your life? It's but a mist. It's like a fog. It's like a vapor. It's here today and then it's gone. And, and so we say, you know, that's, that's just, that just doesn't make sense. Listen, last week we celebrated that Alta Ruth turned 98 years old. And when I went over to her house, and we, we took some cards over and some flowers and such to her house, when she talked about 98 years, she said, you know, all of a sudden, you, know, you just live life, and all of a sudden, you're 98. And my father-in-law turns 85 this weekend. My mom's 84. And if you talk to people in their 80s and 90s, they'll talk about how fast life goes by, and how did that happen, and how did I get to this age so quickly? So I just tell my mom, you need to ride a bull named Fu Manchu. You got to live like you're dying, mom. You got to go for it. Jump out of a plane. Do something. But... But this whole idea of, of life being this, this quantity of days and years. But there's another Greek word for life, and that's the word zoe. This is the eternal life, and it's the quality of life. That it's not so much how many days of our life, but how much living there is. And this zoe life, this life that God intended us to live, is a life that is measured in meaning and purpose and significance. A life that's filled with love and joy and peace and hope. A life that is right with its maker. A life that has been forgiven. A life that is brand new. A life, as Jesus would say, that is abundant, that is, that is full. It's life with a capital L. That's the life. Not just the number of days, but the quality of life that we have with God. And to have that kind of a life. So Jesus is saying, don't work for food that just gives you days. Go after something that gives you eternal life as God intended it. And we're going to have to skip some verses, but he says, so you've got to believe in the one that the Lord has sent, the Father has sent. And they follow up and say, well, listen, give us a sign. What sign will you show us so that we can believe? Remember, they just saw the day before. They saw him take a little sack lunch from a little boy and feed over 5,000 people. They have seen a sign. But now they're saying, well, show us a sign. And then they kind of go back into their history. 
And they start talking about some things that happened to their people, their forefathers, their ancestors in the wilderness from Exodus. It says this. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what, what they're doing is saying, reminding Jesus, you know, in our history, Moses led our people, our forefathers, into the wilderness. And Moses, you know, he led them, and because of that, they had manna to eat. This bread-like substance that would fall from heaven, fall from the sky, six out of seven days a week. And uh, manna itself, it, it simply means, what is it? They weren't even sure about it, but it was from heaven. And it happened six days a week for 40 years. And it's almost like they're saying, okay, Jesus... You want us to believe in you? I mean, Moses is our guy. You want us to believe in you? We know what Moses did, and he brought about this manna for 40 years, and not just for 5,000 men plus women and children, for the whole nation. So let's compare. What do you got? I mean, we know you fed it 5,000 yesterday, but what do you got today? Prove it. Give us a sign. And so they kind of do this, like, throwdown, and Jesus says, okay, <laughs> you want to compare to Moses? To manna, and for the rest of the passage, he comes back to this again and again. Listen, you don't want to get into a verbal sparring match, especially when it comes to biblical things with Jesus. So Jesus' response to them is this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, first of all, your facts are wrong. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He says, first of all, it, it, this wasn't Moses that did that. And then he talks about, you know, Yahweh. And he refers to him as my father, this, this personal connection, which really bothered some of them. Like, you don't talk about God that way. He says, it's from my father. And then he says, you know, look at the, 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 uh, the tenses. It's not Moses who has given, past tense, but my father who gives present tense. Like that was then, this is now, that actually pointed to this, that pointed to what is being fulfilled right now, and my Father who gives you not what is it bread, gives you true bread from heaven. So if you want to compare, let, let's compare. Because it's not the same. And if you think manna was the big miracle, you haven't seen anything yet. You're missing out on it. Verse 33, he goes on and says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What you experienced in history was for Israel. But this bread gives life to the world. Not 5,000. Not the thousands in the wilderness. But to the entire world. And then he makes this really strange statement about this, this bread that comes down from heaven, this bread that's from God, this bread is he. This is confusing. But what he's saying is this bread is a person, you know, make your life about that. Make your life about this one who comes down from God. The, the, bread, the bread is a person. Make him your life. And he's talking about himself. It's not just about having another meal provided for you. It's not just having a history lesson. 
It's about what God is doing right here and right now. And Jesus says, in and through me to you. Don't spend your life working on things and going after things and all your energies and all your efforts for something that's not going to satisfy and something that won't last. The true bread of life, the true bread from heaven, the true bread of God is he. It's a person. And make that your life. So in verse 34, they said, well, sir, from now on, give us this bread. What is their motive? I don't know. Is there a motive that, listen, we don't want to have to make bread anymore, or we like what you gave us yesterday, or whatever you're offering, we'll take. We don't know what their motives are. He says, give us this bread. We're open for it. We want it. And his response is this. Jesus declared, and this was, I know we've already looked at this, but this was such, such a um, troubling statement to them. And Jesus says, I am, first of all. That goes back again to Exodus. When Moses is before the burning bush and Yahweh is sending him into, to deliver the people from bondage and slavery, and he says, who shall I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am. I am that I am. I am sent you. And Jesus uses that, which again is very, very troubling, but he adds some more descriptors, and he does it seven times. In this one, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never go hungry, and who, he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You notice the point of this is all about Jesus. I am. He who comes to me. He who believes in me. The bread of life is a person. Make your life about him. You would think they'd be ecstatic. You'd think they'd be saying, great, fantastic. Let's do this. Yes, you are. They're not so pleased about this. In fact, they're, they're actually quite upset about what he says about himself. And, and as he describes this bread of life that he is, their response back is, is this, in verse uh, 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Who does he think he is? What does he think he is? He, he's comparing himself to being greater than Moses, greater than man, and coming from the Father. And, and there's a whole section that we're going to skip over right now. But in that section, if you read it on your own, he starts talking about this, this connection that he has with the Father. He starts talking about, um, you know, what the Father was, would do and how he'll send people to him. And, and, and it's kind of like this, like he sets himself at a level different from everybody else. And once again, they're troubled by that. And he circles back around again. And he makes this statement and refers to their history once again. In verse uh, 48, I am the bread of life. He says it again. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. I am the bread of life. Uh, several years ago, this is actually quite a few years ago, uh, we were in our community group in our home, and someone, I don't even remember what the conversation was, but I remember it was the first time that I'd ever heard about a thing called Dave's Killer Bread. And this person was going on and on about Dave's Killer Bread and said, you absolutely have to try it. It's fantastic. 
And some of you know the story behind Dave's Killer Bread. It's, it's really quite a fascinating story. This family in the Portland area owned a bakery for years. They had one of the sons that was kind of an outlier, a little bit of a black sheep, uh, spent some time in prison. Anyway, after he got out of prison, he comes back to work for the family bakery, and he begins to experiment. And he comes, his name is Dave, by the way, David. He comes up with this recipe, and he's like, this is it. This is amazing. And over the course of I'll speed through all the details, but they, they call it Dave's Killer Bread. And some of you have had Dave's Killer Bread. What's interesting is, is this, that we love Dave's Killer Bread, especially since Costco carries it, because you can get it in the two-pack and it's cheaper. But my mom and my wife both refer to it as Killer Dave's Bread. And I constantly correct him. Listen, just because he was incarcerated, just because he spent some time behind bars, does not make him a killer. That's not what he was convicted of. But they refer to it as, you know, Killer Dave's Bread. Like, no, 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 he, he's not going to kill you. He didn't kill anybody. He, he broke the law, but he didn't kill anybody. But he's got his killer bread. Well, Jesus comes along and he says, hey, I've got some bread too, and it's not killer, and I'm not a killer, and I didn't kill anybody. But this bread is bringing life. And as far as this bread is concerned, there's something you've got to understand how it is so much better than the manna your forefathers ate, past tense. And then Jesus just like throws down statistics. He says, let's talk about statistics. 100% of the people that ate manna, every single person who ever participated, everyone who ever tasted manna, everyone whose manna ever passed over their lips, anyone who ever ingested manna, 100% of those people have now died. Now, he's not saying that manna caused their death. Manna was good, it provided strength, it provided sustenance, it gave them life for another day. But he says, ultimately, 100% of the people who ate manna are dead. I'm the bread of life. That's what happened, past tense, for 40 years. And they're all dead now. The next verse, he goes on, he says, but here is, not then, here is, tense, now, here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I'm telling you, not just about something that happened years and years ago, but something that is tra transpiring in your midst right now. Here is this bread, and here's the statistics on this one. Whoever eats this bread, 100% of the people who eat this bread will live. Every single one of them. So, you want to compare to Moses and manna in the wilderness? Fine, let's do that. Moses didn't provide anything. It was my father. That bread was for 40 years. I'm talking about eternal life. That manna, you're saying, what is it? This is the true bread. This is not just something that will sustain you for a day. This is a person who will give you eternal life. 100% of the people that ate manna are dead. 100% of the people that eat this living bread they will live. So you want to compare? Let's compare. You see, for them, historically, the feeding of the 5,000, it was miraculous. And it was mysterious. What is it? The day before, they had experienced something miraculous and mysterious. How did he do that? How did that happen? But what he's saying is, man, all of that, the feeding of 5,000, the manna in the wilderness. 
Yes, it was mysterious. Yes, it was miraculous. But the most mysterious and miraculous meal is the bread of life. The feeding of the 5,000 was a foreshadowing. It was a pointing to someone that God would send to sustain your life for eternity. What I did yesterday, that was a sign to reveal who I am. I am the bread of life. I am from heaven. I am the fulfillment of all of those things. Then in verse 51, he says this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, again, as I said, there's a ton that we have to skip over. This whole thing of this bread is my flesh, in a few verses, and read it on your own, he goes into this, and this is a, just, it, it just creeps them out. Like, it sounds like cannibalism. Sounds like the Donner Party, all right? Because he says, my flesh is, true, is it's real food, and, and my blood is real drink. And he says, and if you will not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, it's like, whoa. I mean, that sounds weird. I mean, even those of us who know where this is going, it still sounds kind of weird. And he says, listen, my flesh and my blood, this is what you're going to eat and this is what you're going to drink. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, not just for Israel. Not just for the 5,000 that were on the hillside yesterday. For the life of the world. I will give. And it's a picture. It's talking about what would happen on the cross. And again, we'll revisit this in three and four weeks from now at the Last Supper. But he says, this bread, this bread of life that I am, it's bread that is broken. You see, bread starts off as wheat. And Jesus would say in John chapter 12, verse 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it just remains all by itself. But if a kernel goes into the ground and dies, it will produce much He's not just giving an agricultural farming lesson. He's talking about what he's going to do. That he is going to die and, in essence, be planted in a grave. And from that, that death will come forth life. And then wheat, when it's harvested, the chaff is taken off, and then it's ground down, it's broken apart, it's ground in, in Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities, broken down into fine flour, and then it's kneaded and then it's baked and then it's bread. And then at that Last Supper, it says he took the bread and he gave thanks for it And he broke it, and he gave it to them. This is my body, broken for you. So much greater than just feeding the 5,000 a lunch. So much greater 
than the manna that came about for 40 years. That this would be the bread that would bring about eternal life, this broken body of Christ. Now, there's something that's really easy to miss, and, and I'll, I'll just hit it real quick. But I think it's so significant. In verse 35, in verse 41, I think, in verse 48, you see where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread. Say, so, yeah, same thing. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Subtle but very important distinctive. I am the bread of life. That's who he is. I am the living bread. That's what he is doing. Oh, man. I, this one could be its own sermon for sure. Jesus is the bread of life. He comes from heaven. He comes from God. But he is the living bread, the one that dwells right within us, the one that transforms us, the one that guides us, the one that, that, that leads us, the one that fills us, the one that brings abundant life. That's what he's doing. It's not just who he is. It's what he's doing. That's why he says, eat you know, my flesh, my body. I'm that bread and that's what I'm doing. Uh, in, in that section where he talks about his blood and his, uh, and his flesh, look at the verbs. They're all present tense. If he eats, you know, if he feeds, you must eat, you must feed. It's, it's present tense. This is how we live our life. It's with the bread of, of life. It's, it's with Jesus in our life. Okay. John is the only gospel writer who doesn't give us an account of the Last Supper. But he's also the only one who gives us this bread of life discourse. And one of the commentaries I read, I, and I thought this was fantastic, was that maybe John was saying, listen, when Jesus said, take this bread and do this in remembrance of me, maybe it wasn't just when you're taking communion. Maybe it wasn't just at a, a refuge service. Maybe it wasn't just when you're at church. Maybe he says, I want you to understand that this living bread is something you ingest and you digest every single day and that every meal becomes a sacrament. That every time you sit down to eat bread, every time you sit down to, to consume anything, that it's a reminder that Jesus is the living bread, that he is the bread of life. He is the one that gives us eternal life. Now, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, and he would say these things. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What if we approached every meal not just saying, Jesus, we invite you to this table. Jesus, we are reminded that you are the living bread within us that sustains us, that strengthens us, that changes us, that gives us life, that transforms us. To have that be our current reality every single day. Don't just ingest but digest the bread of life. You know, there's a time where you receive Christ, where you ask for his forgiveness, where, where you ask him to be the Lord, the Redeemer, the, the Savior of your life, yes. But it doesn't stop there. It's this ongoing living in his presence, surrendering to him, dwelling in his goodness and his grace, following in his ways, becoming more like him, partnering with him in his, in his mission to redeem the world, to have the living bread right within us, to live that way. All right, so here's what I want to challenge us with, is that this is not just a meal with Jesus. 
It's a meal about Jesus, and it's a meal of Jesus within us. To live with him and to recognize him and to walk with him every single day. And I pray that you don't just have Jesus as your chef who brings you lunch, but as your king who brings you life and life to the full. Life as God intended you to have it. Life that is filled with hope, that is filled with peace, that is filled with joy, meaning and significance and purpose and forgiveness and grace, regardless of how many days you draw breath into your lungs on this earth to experience that living, eternal life that will go on through all eternity. Ah, live in the goodness and grace of God. Consume the bread of life. Let the living bread bring you life each day.